We return to our study in Job, but before we get to the text of Job, I want to read a little bit from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a song of David. It's not told in this text when the psalm was written, but it is a psalm of David. It is set to the tune, uh, Hind of the Morning, Hinds of the Morning, and so you can see that in the superscription there. But you will recognize these opening uh, verses and several other ones in the course of this this psalm. I want to read it because what we are going to hear from Job, and we've already heard in some respects in chapter 3, his, his great lament, uh, is not unique to Job. And this one being a psalm of David, a godly man, right? A righteous man, God, one who's, who uh, God delighted in. He had very similar statements. And it's not just him. Because as I read this opening verse, you're going to hear, you, we have heard this opening statement from another man, our Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 22 and verse 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my salvation are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I call by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned upon the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you rescued them. To you they cried out and were granted escape. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. Verse 6 says, But I'm a worm, and not a man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They smack their lip, they wag their head, saying, Commit yourself to Yahweh. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me out of the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You've been my God from my mother's womb. And then in verse 11, he talks about the, the issues that he has facing, very similar to what Job was facing, right? If you jump down to verse 14, for example, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil doers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And so this prayer that David uttered, Jesus uttered, verse 19, But you, O Yahweh, be not far off. O my strength, hasten to my help. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. From the horns of the wild oxen you have answered me. He goes on and says, I will praise you. There in verse 22, uh, verse 25 of you is my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. And on it goes. Uh, the kingdom, verse 28, the kingdom is Yahweh's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Their seed will serve him. It will be counted about the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done it. A Psalm of David a psalm of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it reflects so much of what we read in Job's account, so much of his life, so much of his despair, his crying out to the Lord, but also his ultimate victory in the Lord, not because the Lord turned his life around and gave him his health back and all the things, but because his relationship with God was secured, it was established through trials, through the suffering that he endured, and yet he came to know more of God, which is our prayer. We want to know God better. We want to do as, or, or, or experience, as Jesus said in John 17 and verse 3, this is eternal life. This is what life is all about. This is life not just in the future. Someday we'll have eternal life. No, we have it now. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. To know God, that is life. Therefore, we can extrapolate to not know God, that's death. Even though somebody may be alive, if they don't know God, they are walking dead men. They, are, they need to be regenerated, born again. So when we see and turn to Job chapter 6, we will see a lot of these sentiments repeated by Job, a lot of the things we heard from David and from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ when he was on the cross or through his life, especially that last week of his life, we realize, wow, we go through suffering, we go through trials, and yet God is near to us, and he rescues those who are broken in spirit, those who trust in him and rest in him, and find assurance that God's purposes are being accomplished through things that we we just, okay, God, how are you going to save this? How are you going to work good things out of this? This is bad, what we're going through. And Job uh, 
we'll say more of these kinds of things as we go through the book, but he's always getting back. It's not the stuff that was taken from him. I mean, he, he can give, he can take or, or relinquish that, no problem. It's, he doesn't understand how God is working through these things. He, he, he is struggling with his relationship. He thought he had a good relationship with God, but then these things happened. And because of his thinking, you know, blessing uh, comes to those who, who trust God. Well, not always, not always. And he was helping us to understand it. He experienced it uh, and, and gave us the example and the instruction that we should trust in Yahweh even though he kills us, even though he slays us. Now, it, it, and it's not a nasty, vindictive kind of sense. We can bring God glory in the good times and the bad times. In fact, do you know one of the famous verses, Philippians 4, verse 13? It's on all kind of athletic uh, equipment and, and jerseys and, and posters on the wall. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But the context there is, I have learned to abound and to be abased. Paul is saying, I, I have learned how to be, you know, riding the wave of success and good times and how to go into the depths of despair and depravity. Uh, well, not depravity, but in uh, being de- deprived. There's the word. Deprived of all kinds of things. I, I, I spent days, nights, floating in an open sea. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten. All these things. I have learned how to be content in all circumstances. It's Christ who gives strength. We'll see even in this text, Job 6 and 7, how Christ is very near. Even though Job is kind of groping in the darkness, Christ is near. And we see that Christ himself is that basis, that substance that Job is yearning for. I'm not going to read the whole text of Job 6 and 7, but this is a response that Job has, the first response that he has to his his friends. Uh, Eliphaz had spoken in verses, in uh, chapters uh, 4 and 5, of course, responding or teaching uh, Job. In fact, as we consider it, this is kind of a summary statement. We looked at this a couple times ago, a couple weeks ago, in terms of what is the mindset, what's the worldview kind of filter that the friends are approaching this, and to a certain degree, Job as well. How do we how do we relate to God, and what is our life like? How do we expect God to work in our lives? Well, the friends' approach could be summarized by this: these statements: suffering follows sin, and and Eliphaz was kind of beating around the bush a little bit, implying you know the righteous they're blessed and the and the wicked they're cursed. And so Job, if you want to make sure that you're right before God, you need to confess your sin and, and draw near to Him and and uh, turn from those things and, and find your hope in God. But Job says, and he's, we're going to see it here. In, I've teased you enough. We'll turn to the text here in just a moment. But Job says, I haven't sinned. There's not, show me where I've sinned. I haven't done anything that deserves this. I don't understand. But their worldview says, no, if you're suffering, that's because of sin. And so you just need to repent and come back. But the, the corollary is true here as well, that blessing follows piety. If, if you want the good things from God, you need, be a, you need to be a pious person. As we read back in Job 1 and verse 1, Job was blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. That's a pious life. You know, we use that term pious in a kind of a negative sense, but it's not. It doesn't have to be that. It's one who's devoted to God, walking in the Spirit, for example, trusting in His Word, all those kinds of things. But their really rubric, their, their rule of living is suffering follows sin, blessing follows piety. It's, it's obvious. I mean, it's, it's a clear-cut case. Job, if you have suffering, it's because of sin. If you want blessing, you, you better be a pious person. Well, Job doesn't want the blessing, doesn't want the trappings of, of knowing God. He wants to know God. He wants to understand Him better. And thankfully, by the time we get to chapter 42, he does know God better. He knows Him in His fullness. Well, more of the fullness. He knows Him in a more deep way, a deeper way. We looked at this last time, too, in our text here. Because the friends approaches this way, suffering follows sin, blessing follows piety, it was really an inversion of what Satan had said in chapter 1 and chapter 2, when he was challenging God, an inversion of, of Satan's accusations that piety follows blessing. The only reason Job is a pious person is because you put a hedge around him and you blessed him, you just blessed his socks off, he's the greatest of the sons of these. It's because of that that he trusts in you. In other words, and it's not so much an attack on Job, right? It's an attack on God. God, there's no reason why anybody would trust you, want to live for you, want to be a pious person, except the gifts that you give to people. In other words, you have to pay your followers. You have to bribe people. You're not worthy in yourself, God, to have worshipers and followers. You're a joke. And just wickedness out of Satan's mouth. 
piety, the only reason for piety is because you bless them. But the corollary is true as well, right? Sin follows suffering. If Job, if you take that, that hedge away from Job, he will curse you. He will curse you to your face. In other words, he's going to sin. You bring suffering upon him, he will sin. And we think, boy, that's, that's a really simplistic view of life, isn't it? That we can, that we have to follow God because of the gifts. And if he takes those gifts away, then we're going to sin against him and curse him and find fault with him. No, Satan understands that. Satan accuses that because he, that's part of his whole methodology. If we can somehow remove the, the blessings, the trappings of people's life, then they will curse God to his face. Job is, is dealing with this worldview, this mindset. The friends are very consistent in, in different respects. They have the same message. Job is responding to it. He says, no, your words, they don't apply to me. I, I'm not guilty of these things. I don't care about the stuff. I'm trying to understand God. You think you have, got, you have God all figured out, that God always operates this way. No, I'm an exception. I am blameless. We saw it by the narrator, right? Narrator in chapter 1, verse 1. And then God himself repeated the characteristics of Job twice in uh, chapters 1 and 2. So we get to chapter 6 then. Job is responding to some degree to Eliphaz's statements. And he says a verse that, that was active in our family earlier last week. We just repeated a lot because it's kind of a catchy, catchy phrase. Verse 2 of Job 6. Oh, that my vexation were actually weighed and laid in the balances together with my destruction. I think, well, that's kind of a downer, isn't it? Well, Job is saying, look, my words may be rash. In fact, he says, verse 3, my words have been rash because of these things. Now, he's, he's talking about a balance of scales, not like a, a bathroom scale that you step on and you get the thing, but a balance where you have trays that, that are, are balanced by themselves, right? They should be if they're empty. And then you start putting stuff on it and the weight goes down. And he says, if you put on one side my vexation, the, the, dismay, the, the grief, the suffering that he has in his life, together with his destruction, the, the uh, catastrophe. This is, wow, this is horrible, this misfortune, all the stuff I've lost. If you put that on one side, and then you put all the sand, how does he say it? Uh, it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. So you put all the sand of the seas on the other side, it would still be heavier. My vexation, my destruction is great. It is extreme, which reminds us, Job is a rather extreme character. He is the greatest of the sons of the East, back in chapter 1 I mentioned it. He is rich beyond measure. He is has the character of a saint, blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil, and he loses it all. He loses his reputation. He loses his health, eventually, chapter 2. He loses all of his stuff around the livestock. His children, his ten children are taken from him. And he says, look, there's a reason why I'm saying these things. I'm rash, perhaps. Verse 3, my words have been rash. But he says in verse 4, the arrows of the Almighty are within me. They're poison. My spirit drinks. The horrors of God are arranged against me. He is talking, he's, he's attributing all these things that have going, are going on is from God. Which he said before, right? Uh, chapter 1, at the, at the end of chapter 1, he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return there. Yahweh gave and Yahweh is taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. He identifies God as the source of these things. He's not saying, he, he never attributes these things to Satan. In fact, Satan never appears again in this, in this text. We saw him, he, he did his worst against Job, and now he's off the scene. So Job always attributes these actions to God. Here he calls them the Almighty. You remember at in chapter 2, verse 10, Job says to his wife, Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept calamity? So he, he recognizes God is in these things, but now he says, Look, these things hurt. These are this is poison. One of the things about arrows is you don't it's not like hand-to-hand combat. It, arrows come from a distance away and they come and just destroy and hurt and, and wreck havoc. And he says these are even poisoned arrows, and they come right into him. And he is, he is, I mean, it hurts again. These arrows are within me. They haven't been removed. The poison, my, my spirit is drinking up. So he gives these examples in verses 5. Well, verse 5, does the wild donkey bray over his grass, or does the ox low over his fodder? In other words, if animals have their food, they're not going to say anything. They're going to eat it, right? They're, they're not complaining. They're not moaning. Uh, and so he says if there's, there's cause and effect here. If they have what they need, it's good times. But he says in verse 
Six, can something tasteless be eaten without salt, or is there any taste in the slime of a yolk? In other words, this what I'm facing right now, it, it's not food, it's not edible, it's disgusting to me. Even in verse 7, my soul refuses to touch them. They're like loathsome food to me. I can't endure this. It, he can be referring to Eliphaz's speech, perhaps. What you're saying to me is disgusting. I turn away. I can't even take it. Could be he's referring to that. Could be he's referring just to the whole situation of his of his life, right? That I, this is so distasteful. I'm, I, you know, the ox and the wild donkey. Notice the contrast between a wild animal and a domesticated beast. He's saying even the, the wild animals are like this, and so much more the domesticated animals are like this. And so when I look at this, I, it's disgusting. I, there's nothing that attracts me to this kind of life. He is just in dismay. I forgot to show you this. Chapter 6 can be broken up into several parts. A soliloquy, a monologue, a, a statement that Job has, not necessarily talking to Eliphaz, maybe talking just out loud, just uh, expressing what is on his heart. He's not talking to God yet. That'll be in chapter 7. So he is saying, look, I have spoken rashly, but justly. From my agony, remember the vexation, the destruction that he has going on in his life. So these first uh, seven verses here talk about his his justification for his rash, his uh, perhaps imprudent words that came out of his mouth that kind of set Eliphaz back on his heels. Whoa, you used to help other people going through similar situations. Now it's come upon you and you're impatient. You can't endure it for a little bit. But again, Job is not like other people. Job is going through an extreme, extreme situation, and it's for God's glory, ultimately, that this will go through. Some people, by the way, have characterized or compared the situation of Job losing everything to what Abraham was called to do in, in Genesis 22, when, I mean, this was the promise, right? In Abraham, in your seed, all the nations will be blessed, but not through Ishmael and not through anybody else, through the son of Sarah through Isaac. And so now you get to Genesis 22 and God says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go kill him as a burnt offering. Present him as a burnt offering to me. And so Job does it. He's going through the process and he he is saying, even though he slays me, I mean, he's taking, he said, he said through Sarah, my, my, all this stuff is going to happen through Isaac, not through Ishmael. So somehow, we get to Hebrews 11, somehow Job, or excuse me, Abraham was thinking, God's going to have to raise him from the dead because he told me to kill him as a burnt offering to God. But what comes of that is that God provides a substitute to die in the place of Isaac, and he provides a deeper, clearer picture of himself, proving to Abraham he is a faithful follower of God, but also proving that God can work wonders. God is a God who provides, right? That's where we have that that uh, phrase or that name of God. God provides Jehovah Jireh, if you want it in that uh, kind of a phrase. And so God provides in the course of suffering and the course of loss and, and uh, calling people to trust him. Uh, you can trust him. So we get to verse 8 and we have a different plea, something that we've heard about before. Well, actually, we haven't heard it. Remember in chapter 3, he said, you know, I wish I was never born. I wish I died at birth. Why am I still alive? summarizing what he said in, in chapter 3. But now he says, I wish God would just kill me. End the suffering that I'm going on, is going on in my life. And he's, he re- presents it, rather, in verse 9 as a hope. He hopes that he would die. He hopes that God would kill him. Now, notice, and, and throughout Job's laments, all of his rash words, perhaps, he never gets to the point of of speaking of ending his own life or taking his own life. There are examples of, of suicide in Scripture, but he, he's never driven to that. He's just saying, if, if I'm going to die, God's going to have to do it. And I wish he'd do it sooner than later. I wish, in fact, right today, I wish he would just crush me right now. Oh, that my request might come to pass, that God would grant my hope. Would that God were willing to crush me, that he would release his hand and cut me off. Wait a minute. Is, release his hand? It's not like God's hand is bound, Right? In fact, the only person whose hand is bound has been Satan's. God said, you can touch his his uh, belongings, all of his livestock, even anything outside of his body, but don't touch his body, that first set of trials. And then the second time, you you're, you have permission now, Satan, you can touch his body, but spare his life. And so if anybody's hand is is bound, right, 
It's Satan's. God is in control. It's not that that God would somehow release his hand or have his hand released. No, God can do whatever he wants to do. And Job says, I wish that he would crush me, just cut me off entirely. He has this, this at the end of verse 9, that phrase, cut me off, has the idea, and he returns to it a few times, of um, cloth making, weaving. And there's a point at which, uh, when you have all the cloth done, there's a point at which you cut the the last thread that was holding it to the loom, and now it's... It's done. It's gone. And he says, I wish that he would just cut me off and not sell me or, or, you know, put me into use. Just throw me away. Just, I'm done. I'm going to descend into Sheol to death and just, I wish it would happen soon. But he says in verse 10, even so, I rest in my righteousness. I have not, at the end of verse 10, he says, I have not at all hidden away the words of the Holy One. Hidden away in terms of his obedience. He's not, we, we often talk about um, hiding God's word in our hearts. That's a different kind of a, of a phrase. We're, we're meditating, memorizing God's word. We're thinking about it and, of course, doing it. Hiding it here is not that kind of a positive sense. It's hiding it like turning away from it, knowing what God wants me to do, but then saying, I don't want to do that. So it, it's not a, a personal ignoring of God's word, but also he says, I have not hidden hidden God's word from other people. I have spoken God's word. So both applying it in his own life and teaching it. I have not hidden at all the words of the Holy One. And so we, we look at this and you think, wait a minute, this is the this is time of the patriarchs, right? Most likely. So 2000 BC. How much of, of God's word did Job know? How much of the scripture? Well, he didn't have the scripture at that time. It hadn't been written. Remember who wrote Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It was Moses. Another 600 years afterward when he started writing what we have as the Pentateuch or the first five books of the scriptures. Those are the first, um, well, purportedly the, the first books written. Perhaps Job was written prior to that time. It's a question about that when, when the actual text of Job was written down for us. But how much of God's revelation did he have? Whatever portion he did have from Adam, from Enoch, a holy righteous guy, from Noah even, he treasured it. He says, I've not hidden it away. I have treasured it. I have tried to obey it. I've been very cautious, very diligent to seek God, his work in my life. And yet, I just, I just, I wish I would die. Verse 11 through 13 says, my strength is gone. What is my strength that I should wait? What is my end that I should endure? Is my strength the strength of stones? Is my flesh bronze? Is it there's no help within me? Then the success of sound wisdom is driven from me. In other words, he doesn't have, he's at his wit's end. He, he is beyond help as from his perspective. He doesn't have any inner resources yet to, to endure. Even though you read in, in James chapter five, how uh, James celebrates the fact that uh, you consider the perseverance or the endurance of Job that he trusted. He was patient under the Lord's uh, care and concern. So he, James, comes back and celebrates the fact that Job did persevere. But Job says, I don't have it in myself. I am just beyond. I don't have the strength of stones, you know, uh, stable things, or or the, the bronze, by the way. Uh, in archaeological time periods of Iron Age, you've heard Iron Age, before Iron Age is the Bronze Age. And he uses Bronze Age terminology, because that was the strongest metal that they had for, for, for shields and that kind of thing, but also for farming implements. He was a big farmer, right? And he says, the best thing, the strongest metal I can think of is bronze. And so he, again, puts us back into the time of the patriarchs, the use of, of bronze. Iron was used too, but it's kind of a more expensive metal. Uh, it's more prevalent in the Iron Age, time of the, of the nation of Israel founding and, and beyond. But bronze was used at the time of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then he, he turns his attention then in verse 14 to rebuke his friends. And you think, well, his friends came with good intentions, right? To comfort and console Job. Yes, but kind of also at a distance, kind of cautious because they said, well, what he, happened to him might happen to us too. And so we would kind of keep our distance from him. And Job indicates that here in just a moment, the fear that they had of associating too closely with Job. But he, he turns to them and says, you guys are just worthless, you know, I expected great things from you, but you are just treacherous even, verses 14 through 23. He says, and verse 14 is, is a hard, hard verse to translate. 
It's because of how the, how the text is written. And, uh, this text says, For the despairing man, loving kindness should be from his friend, but he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. I think the ESV has a very similar expression there as well that uses or presents it as, um, he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. I think it says there. Loving kindness. The expectation is, let me just cut to the quick on this. The, loving kindness you would expect to come from a friend, especially for those who are at their wit's end. The idea here is those whose hearts have melted, those who are dismayed. We read about it in Psalm 22. My heart is like wax within me. I just, I can't do anything. Wax just is not, so I, I'm, I waste away before God. And so he says, loving kindness, compassion, mercy even, ought to be from friends. When, when they come to a person who's in that situation, loving kindness should come. But then this next phrase, but he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. Is that talking about the one who's dismayed? Is that talking about the friend who should be showing loving kindness but isn't? The idea is, you know, fearing the Almighty is a good thing. So forsaking that, turning away from, from that is, is not something that we ought to do. It's not something that pleases God. What, what's going on here? Again, the expectation is of these friends Job has, they're going to show compassion, loving kindness, faithful, loyal love to him, and they're not. They're assuming he's evil, and it'll get more apparent as we go along in these speeches. And Job says, I'm not. I, I, you know me. You've no, if I'm a sinner, tell me what I've done wrong. I don't know anything that I've done wrong that would warrant this kind of action. He compares his his brothers here, he calls them, his friends, to a wadi. A wadi is, we have it here, every region has it to some degree, creek beds that are dry, that that are there. It's where the water will go when there's rain or snow and that melts and it needs to, a channel to run through. And he says, my brothers have betrayed me like a wadi, like the torrents of wadis which pass away, which grow dark because of ice upon which the snow hides itself. When they become waterless, they're silent. When it's hot, they vanish from their place. The paths of their course wind along. They go up to formless place and perish. So th- these are streams, but they're only streams in the rainy times. And or, or if the something up upstream has melted and the water comes down, and they are faithless. In other words, you can't rely upon them. They they are treacherous. You you want to believe it? Hey, I know there's water here because there's a wadi, right? No, not necessarily. Only in the right time, in the right season of, of the year, are those wadis running with water. And a lot of times when they do run with water, they're treacherous, they're dangerous. You try to get a drink out of them, and they will sweep you away. How many times, you, we've heard this in even in our present day, California has all these floods and, and things, and people are swept away in these dry creek beds, these wadis. And it's it's constant every rainy season in Israel, uh, from like November till March time period, you always hear about hikers who are out there climbing. It's a beautiful time to go hiking and, and explore these, but watch out for the wadis, and you can never anticipate when they might be coming, because, when the water might be coming, because you're hiking in these things. They're in the desert. The rain is way miles away. You may never know. It's raining up here, but you will know when the water comes down, and not just a little, whole torrent. And so... Job compares his friends to these treacherous wadis, unreliable, not helpful. In fact, he gives an example, verse 19. There are caravans that were coming that were hoping to receive some water, but verse 20 says they were ashamed, for they trusted they came there and were humiliated because there's no water. And he says, you are just like that. You have become faithless, treacherous wadis. You see a terror and you're afraid. In other words, they look upon Job and they see, well, we don't want to become like him, so we need to make sure that we give him the advice that, that well, we don't really want to hear it ourselves, but that's that's our solution. That's the only um, weapon in our arsenal. That's the only the tool in our in our toolbox. Sin follows suffering. Job, if you want to get back with God, you need to confess your sin, turn from it, which is a, a, a an appropriate way to think, but not immediately. Wait a minute. What about showing compassion? mercy toward him, loving him. Maybe, hey, Job, here's a different posture you could use. I mean, just helping him to the whatever degree they have. I mean, he's there scraping himself in the ash heap. And how to, how to be helpful? He says, these guys are not helpful. They are, they, they're trying to, to kind of watch and see. They're expecting Job to die. And Job would love to, love to die. He says, verse 22 and 23, I haven't asked anything from you. I haven't made any complete demands or, or uh, exhaustive commands of you. I don't want anything from you. 
but you should be showing me loving kindness. You are just treacherous, faithless friends. He goes on in verse 24 through the uh, almost, well, few, few verses here. He says, show me how I've sinned. Here he says, verse 24, instruct me, I'll be silent. Cause me, show me, help me understand how I have erred. I don't know what I've done wrong. It's not to say that Job thinks he's sinless. No, he talks about his sin different times, but he says, I don't, when I sin, I deal with it, right? Chapter 1, verse 5, perhaps my my children have sinned by cursing God in their hearts, so we offered sacrifices. If he was doing that for his family, how much more was he doing it for himself, approaching God through sacrifice? But he says, I don't know anything. I haven't confessed to God. I haven't covered with a sacrifice. I don't know anything. But you guys, you instruct me, I will listen. Well, the only time Job does end up shutting his mouth is when God comes and talks to him. In, in chapter uh, 40, he says, I, I, no, I'm not going to say anything else. And then chapter 42, he has to acknowledge that God is right. But he says, look, I'll listen to you. You cause me to understand. You, you show me because you're so smart, right? You guys know everything. You show me how I have erred. Uh, verse 24, that idea of erring is uh, an inadvertent sin, uh, in an unintentional. I didn't, I wasn't a high-handed sin. I know what I'm doing and I'm going to do it because I want to do it myself. Even though it's contrary to God's word, he says, I don't, I don't, can't think of any example of that. I don't know what's, what I've done. There are sacrifices. These are, this comes after the time of Job, but Leviticus chapters four and five talk about sacrifices for unintentional sins, which are these errors that he's talking about here. Uh, Psalm 119 verse 67 says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. In other words, I, I didn't, I didn't know God's word. I went astray just because, but now, because of my affliction, I have learned to trust God and obey God. Not for the blessings that come, but just to know God better, to keep his word, uh, the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 67. So he never, Job never denies the possibility he's sinned. He says, I just don't know what it is. I have no clue what would have warranted this kind of, uh, punishment, perhaps, this discipline of the Lord, which is what the friends will assume it is. It's punishment or it's discipline, corrective discipline from God. He says, okay, tell me about it. I don't know. And verse 25 says, how painful are upright words. In other words, um, when a rebuke comes, it's not a pleasant experience. When people say, hey, you're, you've uh, erred in these ways, and, you know, oh, boy, that's, that's hurtful to me. That, that you're, you're, pointing, you're kind of poking at the wound on my face or whatever, or my body, and it doesn't feel good, but it says, wait a minute, you're right to acknowledge that, to turn from the sin, to be convicted over it. How painful are upright words when they're given in the right way, truth delivered through love and having compassion, trying to restore those, you know, Galatians 6 and verse 1, restore those who are caught in any trespass. That's painful stuff. It's hard stuff. Um, but the hope is that they'd be restored to God. So yeah, how painful are upright words, but hey, what did your proof prove? There's nothing. What you're saying is not accurate, it's not adequate, it's not to the point. You think you're trying to approve my words, but don't you know, uh, you regard them rather, uh, verse 26, you think of the words of me as one in despair as just wind, just irrelevant stuff, just coming and going. I'm speaking out of my heart. I'm speaking truth. I'm speaking from my perspective, and you just cast it off. You dismiss it. That's not that's not helpful. And he gives this example, uh, verses verse twenty-seven. You would even cast lots for the orphans and bargain over your friend. So they're just mercenaries. They're just out for themselves. They they would take advantage of those who are in difficult uh, distresses. They are unjust in their behavior and, and would, would take advantage of people. And he says, look, turn to me, turn to me, trust me, I am a righteous person. And he's not self-righteous, kind of gets there toward the end of this book, but but he says, turn to me, look at me, in other words. You guys are doing all, you're talking to each other, you're you're trying to make, you know, get likes on the Twitter and all this kind of, forget about that, look at me, turn to me, physically, turn your face and see if I'm lying to your face. Turn from this. Let there be no unrighteous. Turn from this. My righteousness is yet in it. I haven't done anything that warrants these things. Verse 30 says, Is there unrighteousness on my tongue? Cannot my palate discern destruction? In other words, Job has discernment. He knows. He can feel the conviction of God. And he can understand or or identify the sins that are in his life. He doesn't need other people necessarily to tell him. It is helpful. If any, Again, Galatians 6.1, if someone is caught in a trespass, just can't see it, doesn't acknowledge it, doesn't know that they're sinning, well, we go and, and we confront it. We help them to come to understanding. But he says, I'm not like that. I know. 
I deserve and I hate sin. I don't want it in my own life, my family's life. Unrighteousness is not on my tongue and I can discern the punishment of God upon sinners. I know what happens. But in chapter 7, he kind of shifts. He's been talking to his friends, but now in chapter 7, he's talking to God, kind of in a, in a, toward God, but then eventually he's going to be talking right directly to God. Verses 1 through uh, 6 is this, again, continuing this soliloquy, this monologue, talking about the distress of life. My life is painful, and I am beyond strength. Um, and he compares himself to hired laborers. I won't belabor the point here about this thing. He just says, look, even a hired laborer expects some reward, whether a payment at the end of a day or maybe just shade, something to have rest in the cool of the day. But uh, verse 3 says, I am apportioned months of worthlessness. I went no wages. I don't get any wages for my, my suffering. And nights of trouble are appointed to me. If I lie down, I say, when shall I rise? The twilight continues. I'm saturated with tossing until dawn. And on he goes, talking about physical situation. Even the minor comfort that Job would expect in his ruined life, just a good night's sleep. It's taken from him. He tosses and he turns. And even when he does sleep, he has these horrible dreams. I think he mentions maybe a little bit later, has these dreams that are just so bitter. Yeah, verse uh, 13, you frighten me with dreams. You terrify, terrify me by visions. And so he's, I don't have any comfort, even the mildest comfort of, of a good night's sleep taken from me. Everything about my life is just unbearable and horrible. It's a painful life. I am just at my wit's end. Verse, verse uh, 6 says, again, that weaving illustration, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to an end without hope. Again, the, the weaving, making the, you know, bringing the thread back and forth, it goes very fast, which is kind of a, a contrast idea, right? He says, my life has gone by so fast, but he says, I wish I were dead right now. And it's kind of a contrasting idea. Wait a minute, you're talking about your life is going by so fast, but then you want it to be cut off right now. What do you want, Job? You want to live longer? You want to be dead now? He says, I don't even know what I want. I just want comfort. It hurts all these things going on. And he, verse six, by the way, come to an end without hope. Another way to understand that, because the word hope can also refer to a cord or a, a thread, a weaver's thread. So he says, I come to an end without thread or at the end of thread, which is I don't have enough thread to finish the weave, or it could be the idea to snip it off, right? Cut me off uh, and remove me from the loom. And he says in verse 7, then going on, please God, end my brief life, the, the transitoriness of life he identifies here. Verse 7, remember that my life is but wind. My eye will not again see good. Verse 7 talks about this, this wind idea, this, um, this uh, just brief transitory thing that we don't know where it's going, where it came from, is just gone. He compares himself to clouds here a little bit. Verse 9, he says, my life is just so, so temporary, so transitory, so it's here now, but then it's going to be gone. Uh, verse 9, a cloud vanishes, gone, so he who goes down to shield does not come up. It's the end of my life. There's no hope beyond that. Verse 10 says, He will not return again to his house, nor will his place recognize him anymore. When somebody's dead, you're not going to go back home uh, to your physical dwelling. And people say, well, forget about him. This is interesting. I mean, if we, you know, folks that are in the news right now, that everybody knows their name, and 100 years, Lord willing, you know, the Lord tarries and all that kind of thing, People, who, who's this guy you're talking about? We don't know him. And you have to read about him in the history books. But right now, in our generation, everybody knows this guy's name or these people's name or this situation. But when somebody dies, they're gone. They're done. It's transitory. Uh, it's brief. Our, our moment of fame is, is done. And he says here in verse 11, now he's he's been talking to God, right? He says, remember, verse 7, I did forgot to mention that. He says, remember this thing about myself. This this. The practice of remembering is really throughout scripture a lot of times, but it's the idea of remembering, not just recalling to mind, but having, recalling something so that you'll do something about it. In words, in other words, you're, you're thinking about something that then motivates you to a certain behavior. He says, God, remember me. Bring it to mind. Think of these things in a, in a positive way. Remember that my life is just so brief and fragile. Uh, won't you just remember that? And wouldn't you just cut me off? Because I don't have any hope. There's, there's, verse seven, my eye will not again see good. All the good things that I enjoyed in my life, which was a tremendous. I mean, he was a wealthy fella. That's not going to come back to me. And my reputation is going to be gone. God, I can't endure this any longer. 
take note of me, recall me to mind, just like God did with Noah. God remembered Noah, Genesis 8 and verse 1, or Genesis 9 says, verse 15 says, I'll remember my covenant. It's not that God forgot about it, but he says, I will bring it to pass. I will honor that covenant. And so Job is saying, honor me by killing me. Honor me by just wiping me off the place of the earth, the face of the earth, rather. And then in verse 11 through the end of the chapter, he asks God to just leave me alone. What, who am I to you that I should be such a threat to you, such a, a an opponent? I mean, I have nothing. He says, uh, I'll speak. Verse 11, I will muse. And he says in verse 12, am I the sea or the sea monster that you set a guard over me? He's he's talking both very uh, tangibly and visually. He says the sea is something that is chaotic. It is something that is so powerful. It is something that is so, I mean, it's beyond uh, human ability to control. It's something you, you don't control it. You kind of just manage through it. You kind of get the best way across the sea. And he says, am I the sea in that regard, that, that I'm such an opponent to you? Or the sea monster? Yeah, the word here can refer, I think in modern Hebrew, it talks about a crocodile or an alligator, crocodile, I guess, sea monster. But it can also refer to a, a leviathan. We Job mentioned it earlier. You can mention it. God is going to mention it in chapter 41. I mean, a dragon kind of a, a feature. And he, so he says, am I like that? They're, so tangibly, he's saying, am I like the sea, the physical sea, and like the, the big beasts that, that live in that water? But it could also be referring to the... Uh, the pantheon of gods and the Canaanite religious system, the sea and the the dragon or the the sea monster have to do with some some uh, Canaanite, the pagan nations surrounding uh, that the Job and, and his people at the time that had these these gods that were were doing that. Anyway, just to say, am I such a great opponent that you set a guard over me? Am I such a a threat to your existence that you just are so much picking on me? And he says, again, I, I wish I could have some comfort, verse 13, but you frighten me. Even in my, the, the, in my dreams and my sleep, or in my sleep, you give me frightening dreams and terrifying visions so that I'd rather choose suffocation and death rather than my pains. There's another, verse 15, another maybe allusion to some Canaanite gods and the distress that can come and the opposition that I won't get into right now. But he's saying, look, I'd rather, I'd rather die than go through this again. I don't want to go live through another night. Just, kill me, or just leave me alone. He says uh, in verse 16, leave me alone for my days are but a breath. I'm done. What is man that you magnify and you set your heart on him? You examine him every morning and test him every moment. This phrase, what is man that you magnify him or you set your heart on him, is repeated in Psalm 8 and in a positive sense. You know, what is man that you think about him and you exalt him and you, you celebrate him, you guard him? Job says, what who is man to you that you should pick on him all the time? Why Why are you uh, examining me every morning, every moment just seems like you're testing him, just putting him to the test, running him through the, the ringer. There's no relief. I mean, it's like running the running around the track a hundred times and the coach says, no, not another hundred times, do it again. And by the time you get done, you're dead. That's what Job is saying. Why do you examine me? Why do you just leave me alone? Verse 19, will you never... Turn your gaze away from you and let me alone until I swallow my spit. There's that kind of just a very brief, just leave one moment, right? Rega, you say in Hebrew, rega, right? Wait, wait just one moment. Let me, let me collect my, myself. Okay, what do you want now, God? What new horrors are you going to pass upon me? And he says, look, just leave me alone. Turn your gaze away from me. He doesn't acknowledge, doesn't recognize that God's attention to him is in favor. I mean, he loves, God loves Job. Have you considered my servant Job? So many times God refers to Job as his servant, one who is dear to him, not just uh, somebody, but a near person. In fact, I think it's four times later in chapter 42 when, when there's restoration, all these things, God talks about Job as my servant. You have not spoken about me as my servant Job has. My servant is going to intercede for you. My servant is going to do this. And he's talking about Job. There is love and affection. And so for Job to say, every, every attention you give to me is horrible to me. It used to be my delight, but now, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You get the attention here, or the intention of Job? And then these last verses. Have I sinned? 
And and some translations say, I have sinned. I mean, yeah, I've sinned. I've done wrong things. And he actually, in these two verses, he uses three different terms for sin. Here, have I sinned? And then in verse 21, transgression. Why do you not forgive my transgression and take away my iniquity? So he goes from these different ways of looking at sin and saying, I know I'm not a righteous person. I'm not in my own, in my own behavior. And he, later he's going to talk about the sins of his youth and all these different things. But he says, these, there's a way for my sin to be taken away. And one of those ways or the way that Job is celebrated is by sacrifice. And he says, look, God, I've done what you wanted. And you think, well, how did Job know these things? How did Job know about sacrifices to take away sin? Genesis 4. The sacrifices that Cain and Abel offered, God did not regard, did not receive the offering of Cain, because it was produce, it was fruits. No, Abel sacrificed from his flock. He sacrificed blood. We learn later, it's, it's taught there from Genesis 4, but we learn later, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There is no remission of sin. And Job says, I've done what you commanded me to do. And, and why are you still finding fault with me? Why don't you take away or forgive my transgression and take away my iniquity? Why am, and this at the end of verse 20 says, I'm a burden to myself. Another, other way to understand another possible translation is our textual thing is, why am I a burden to you? Why, why am I such a threat to you? Why are you so picking on me? I mean, why don't you pick on somebody else? Pick on somebody your own size, right? You know, the sea or the sea monster. And he's, I'm nothing. Why you, my life is so brief. I'm here for a moment. I'm gone. Nobody remembers me. What is it to you? What's the deal? And he says, I'm going to lie down in the dust. You'll seek me earnestly, but I'll not be. You know, you're, you're missing your chance, God, to, 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 for, for us to have a relationship. I'm going to die. And after that, going to go to Sheol and have nothing. So we see the rashness again, perhaps, of his speeches, but then again, the vexation that he has, the misunderstanding, the confusion that he has. If we were to go back to a phrase, and this will wrap up with this idea, he had asked back in verse 9 of chapter 6, would that God were willing to crush me, that he would release his hand and cut me off. Job says, I want to die. But wait a minute. If Job dies in an unreconciled relationship to God, what expectation does he have of having a relationship with God in the, in the afterlife, in the, in the uh, coming kingdom? Something has to change in Job's perspective. And he says, my solution just cut me off, just crush me. I want to die. The same word crush is used in Isaiah 53 twice. Isaiah 53 and verse 5. He, talking about the Lord Jesus, talking about the suffering servant, the Messiah, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Notice transgression, iniquities, same terms that we saw at the end of Job uh, chapter 7. Christ was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our peace fell upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. goes on and talks about the relationship we have because of Christ being crushed in our, in our place. And then again in verse 10, Yahweh was pleased to crush him, Christ our Lord, by putting him to grief. If you'd place his soul as a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He'll prolong his days and the good pleasure of Yahweh will succeed in his hand. In other words, the only hope that Job has is not by God crushing him, but by God crushing Christ. Having this expectation that I, I'm not a sinner. I, I would if, Well, if I have sinned, I've tried to deal with it by sacrifice. He needed the assurance that God would forgive the confidence that God would forgive his sin by sacrifice, by somebody being crushed in his stead. In other words, we see throughout Job the anticipation, the laying the the groundwork for the gospel of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, the victory over death. Job is uh, consumed with the idea of death and, and just ending his life. But Christ conquered death. He is a resurrected Savior. He conquered these things so that the forgiveness of our sins, the restoration of relationship, can come to those who trust in him, as Job did, but he was struggling with it. He says, I don't understand these things. Why, why, why? And Job doesn't answer. Or excuse me, God does not answer why. He says, you look to me. Look to me. Trust in me. Know I am powerful. Know I can do all these things for my glory. You just rest in me. And Job says, okay. I rest in you. I, I, I find my rightness in you. I find my acceptance in you. What you've done, I don't have to understand at all. And I can even bear through all these different things if I know at least that God is for me. If God is for me, 
doesn't matter what's against me, who's against me. I rest in my knowledge of him and his knowledge of me, his carrying attention to me, not not offensive or destructive attention. Just leave me alone, God. But a caring, loving Heavenly Father who loves his children and gives good gifts to his children, even when they are wrapped in a rather difficult experience. God is faithful through our times of suffering, the destruction, the vexation that we have. God is big enough for us to draw near to him. And Job does come to grips with that as we go through this book. There will be a lot more issues of of his statements that are, are, I mean, will set us back and say, whoa, Job, did you just say that, that God has wronged you? God doesn't wrong anybody. God does not tempt anybody to sin. You need to just be quiet. You need to stop it. Because in a multitude of words, sin is unavoidable. But he who keeps his lips is wise. You be careful, Job, what you're doing. And there's a time coming when he will not say any more. Praise God and then be silent. Until he intercedes for his friends, Job 42. Please feel free to read ahead, by the way. It's okay. When he intercedes for his friends because they did not speak rightly about God, as Job did. And we'll get to that. What Job speaking rightly about God? So many things he's saying here. Whoa, where, is, where are you getting that, Job? Leave me alone? What is a man? We'll get to that at some point. But God is proving himself faithful in all these things, proving himself uh, powerful and strong. His arm is strong to save. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful that your word is true, that we can rest in it, we can find our, our, our satisfaction, our joy, our confidence in you. We pray that we would find our hope, not in death, not in, in the ending of our suffering on this earth, but trusting you through the good times and the bad times, recognizing that you are sovereign, you are good, you're loving you're kind to your people. We're so grateful that you have not brought destruction on even willful, high-handed, uh, rebellious sinners. But you are patient. You want everybody uh, in your in your um, elected people to trust in you, to find a restoration of relationship with you. We're so grateful that you have not judged sin, but we look forward to that day when you will, and that Christ will rule over all nations and every tongue will every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We pray that that day would be soon. Please help us to not dismiss Job as a crank or just a guy who's at the end of his rope, but somebody who speaks our own language, the the words that come out of our mouth sometimes, the words that came out of David's mouth, our Lord Jesus' mouth, and that we can speak to you in in these regards. You're not offended by these things as we challenge you or, or, or question uh, these, our experience in life, but always we rest in who you are, your character, your power, the beauty of your person. Please help us to see you better as a result of our study in Job, as Job himself did. Now I see you. I heard about you, but now I see you. Thank you for reali- revealing yourself to us. Please help us to know and to celebrate you in our lives. We thank you and pray in Christ's name. Amen.